Hello and welcome to Everyday Anarchism. This is an incredibly exciting episode for me, both because of the topic and the guest. The topic is a new book by David Graeber, possibly the last new book by David Graeber, but possibly not. It depends on what is still out there. And the guest is is Corey Doctorow. Corey, I don't know how to describe you. Blogger, science fiction author, podcaster, man of letters, and frankly, left-winger extraordinaire. That's very kind so, of you. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm a science fiction novelist, and I've been blogging for 22, three years now. I've worked with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Yesterday was my 21st anniversary with EFF, so my career as a digital rights advocate is now old enough to drink. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I'm the author of lots of different kinds of books, science fiction books, young adult books, uh, books for teens, books for young readers, picture books, uh, adult books of nonfiction, uh, all, all of the above. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't want to jump too far ahead, but one of the things that this Graeber book that we're here to talk about, um, Pirate Enlightenment or the Real Liber Libertalia, Libertalia, I don't know how to, I don't know how to say, say it. it. Um, it's one of the things it's about is about the Enlightenment, which is you know when these when these people flourish, it's hard to describe them. I'm, the term we usually use is man of letters in the 20th century, and there I guess there were women of letters, but of course far fewer of them in the 20th century. You had professionalization so you had novelists and you had poets and you had science fiction writers and you had philosophers in the 17th century you had people who who wrote and they wrote novels and they wrote journalism and they wrote things that might be considered science fiction and some of them wrote bad poetry and sure. some of them wrote good poetry and i'm seeing as i'm teaching digital composition um, the a kind of rise back of this kind of sort of all-purpose intellectual of of letters, and I will definitely put you in that category, that's, whether you like it or that's not. That's a very fancy way of saying dilettante, but I'll take it. <laughs> well, I mean, dil dilettante is 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 certainly to me better than the like grinded out professional who sure. does the same sure. thing. There's this great tediously. bit in. Um, the Paris Review interview with William Gibson, where they ask him, you know, how does he feel about literary fiction? And he says, you know, sometimes <laughs> I meet these people and they kind of turn down their, they turn up their nose at me. And, and um, I summon a kind of ghetto arrogance and think to myself, you know, whatever else uh, I have, a, I'm part of a pulp lineage that starts with Dashiell Hammett. And by God, I can plot my wheel has, tr my tractor has wheels on it. And when I put that fucker <laughs> into gear, it can just go. And yeah, like uh, I, I, whatever else uh, we pulp writers have, we can at least write a story that sucks you in. And as um, some genuinely terrible people have shown, uh, thinking of Ayn Rand here, writing a story that sucks you in can be a way to change the way that you think uh, for the better and for the worse. Yeah, with without a doubt. And I think there's no doubt that science for me science fiction writing um obviously you're on the show right now i've had kim stanley robinson i've had the james sa Corey, which is to say the the two guys who wrote the expanse series on the show yeah. for me science fiction is i mean you, i can be pretentious and say like a form of embodied philosophy but it's a place where people work out ideas yeah and i'm interested in ideas. and i i think it's also uh, i call it like the the Ouija board, right? So, you know, the Ouija board has got all of the futures that the science fiction writers are thinking of arrayed in a kind of arc. And then all the readers put their fingers on the planchette and their ideomotor response swings it towards <laughs> those futures. And it tells you 
what their kind of latent aspirations and fears for technology in the future are. It's not a predictive literature, but it is a diagnostic one, right? If you want to know what people are worried about and hopeful for, ask yourself what stories they're telling about the future. And then it becomes a predictive literature insofar as a future is imagined sure. that people want and set out to get. So the science sure. fiction writer doesn't predict it, yeah. but the science fiction writer offers a future that can be worked towards or perhaps fled from. Right. It's stone soup. I have this cauldron here with some stones <laughs> in the bottom. Does anyone have a, you know, a, a flying car that they can come and add to it so we can all enjoy yeah. a delicious soup? Yeah, so it's not, yeah, certainly the science fiction writer doesn't predict, but the science fiction writer can, I mean, obviously Google, the the company Google basically just wants to make Star Trek. That's, I mean, and they yeah. used to say that, I don't know if they say that well, anymore, and Bezos except for too. all the left-wing aspects Bezos said uh, the Alexa was was his version of um, the the computer on Star Trek. Right. You know, that that's I, it's a fairly common thing. I have to say, when I hear that, I quail. Because it's always, they're always just such terrible interpretations. It is real, like, Torment Nexus stuff, right? Like, <laughs> it, it just, it's, it's, you know, the last thing you want is, is people treating 1984 as a manual for statecraft. But here we are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, when you imagine a future that makes it possible for people to bring about that mm -hmm. future. And then, of course, I don't want to get into like, well, I guess I'm just about to say like there's the idea of bad fandom. Right. And it does seem like many of our billionaires oh, yeah. are, are bad are bad fans of Star Trek. Yeah. I, I mean, the idea that that cyberpunk was a warning and not a suggestion is lost on people who want to build the metaverse. <laughs> right. I Honestly. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, exactly. And if they, if the, if if Bezos had to confront the socioeconomic reality of Star Trek, the first rule would be no billionaires. Yeah, and that he doesn't sure. seems to sure. miss that part. No, he'd be he'd be like one of those like Harry Mud, right? He'd be one of those exiled billionaires on a planet full of fembots, uh, plotting <laughs> his comeback. Yeah, a, a, a truly important figure in his own mind yeah. and a figure of fun for the rest yeah. of us. Yeah, a tribble. <laughs> so it's time to talk about uh, it's time to talk about the David Graeber book, yeah. I suppose. And I, I got to say, Corey, so this podcast was inspired by a lot of things. More than anything else, it was inspired by the work of David Graeber. And you posted something about debt. Mm -hmm. on boing boing in i don't know i guess when debt came out so like 2011 or something it was like a couple that. of years after that it was i read it after joe walton wrote about it on tour.com and charlie straw started talking about it on his blog so it would have been a couple of years in it was still in so hardcover when i read it so maybe a year in yeah so that was my introduction to david graber mm -hmm. that was the first okay. time i'd ever heard of david graber so thank thank you for that I want to hear before we get into this new book, what what drew you to Graeber and his work? Well, like I said, it was Joe Walton. Uh, Joe, who's an absolutely tremendous polymath writer, poet, writer in many genres, uh, very prolific, and, and lately a kind of, um, I don't know if amanuensis is the right word, but like a, a part of a... a, a an awesome duo with uh, Ada Palmer, who's a you know radical historian and science fiction writer and librettist and singer and, uh, and you know just you know multi threat and and uh, Joe 
writes some of the most erudite work about fiction that I've read without ever not with without ever losing accessibility. Like it's it's you know um, she she had a, a collection of her reviews called "What Makes This Book So Great." And like there is an element of service journalism and everything she does and that what she writes is about explaining what makes a book so great. There's actually a section in that book where she explains that reading Jerry Pornell makes her menstrual cramps go away. And, and it was like it, you could not have wounded a, a kind of paleo conservative misogynist like Pornell worse then, uh, then, then by by naming that, it was it's just a stroke of absolute genius. But um, you know, Joe wrote this thing to, to it was basically like, why are science fiction fans all talking about debt all of a sudden, right? Why, why, how has this crept into our discourse? Uh, and then Charlie wrote about it. Charles Strauss wrote about it. And Charlie and I had written a book together. I think we'd written it at that point together, uh, or we were writing it together anyway. And, and um, Charlie is always like kind of on the cutting edge of big weird ideas. He and, and Carl Schrader, I think, are the people who most reliably talk to me in a kind of excited spittle-flecked way about something that <laughs> two years later turns out to be everywhere, but I'd never heard of. Carl, Carl Schrader is another one of these people. He was the first person who ever said the word web to me, also internet, <laughs> also fractal, uh, like He's uh, maybe Turing complete is one I got from him. He, you know, he's, he's definitely a guy with his finger on the pulse. So, so these two, they started writing about it and about how David's kind of, um, kind of signature way of, of, uh, bridging the academic with the scholarly, with the political, with the popular and kind of in the same way that Joe does her reviews, maybe uh, instrumentalizing his academic work, like ex explaining what it means, telling you why you should care, uh, telling you how this relates to your own work and to your own life. Um, and it was quite mind blowing. And I remember, you know, sort of I was I was living in London at the time and I used to walk down the street to this little grocery store and get lunch every day. And I remember walking, holding this giant brick of a hardcover, reading it and stopping every few minutes to take notes because it was just so good. And then, you know, I read everything he wrote after that. We became friends and I, I helped him out with the launch of Bullshit Jobs. I was his interlocutor on tour. And then, you know, we became pretty regular correspondents and pals and did some video conference, you know, live casts together. And then, you know, a week after the last time we spoke or so, maybe it was two weeks, he died just out of nowhere, dropped dead in Italy out of what appears to be COVID com uh, complications. Since then, I've been helping his widow a little around the edges with uh, um, understanding what to do with his estate and his legacy, his literary estate and his legacy. Um, and uh, I've just joined an advisory board that she tells me Noam Chomsky is on, which I find very <laughs> exciting, uh, that um, is about about kind of overseeing uh, David's uh, literary and intellectual legacy. So I'm a, I'm a David Graeber stan for sure. Yeah, me too. I mean, I uh, thought that his was the most important voice in responding to COVID, when we the, when we were talking about essential workers and mm -hmm. child tax credits and all of these conversations, it was like all of a sudden a David Graeber book had come to life, and to have lost him at at that moment. I mean, to lose David Graeber is a tragedy at any time, but his voice could never have been 
more important than right then, I thought. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, you know, he definitely had his, his... He was such a keen observer and in so many different domains. For me, there's, there's an essay that he wrote that came out in this little collection of essays. It was a title essay called The Utopia of Rules. And it's, uh, uh, you know, I came of age during the tail end of the Cold War as an anti-nuclear proliferation movement. My dad's a Soviet refugee and a communist, a, a Trotskyist. And so I grew up, you know, with um, like hearing and uh, both the the uh, anti-Russophobic, you know, um, alternative narratives about what was happening in the Soviet Union and also the hysteria about the Soviet Union from kind of right-wing bedwetters. And uh, David makes this incredible point in Utopia of Rules, which is that the the fetish, which is both a right-wing punitive fetish and then also a, prog a progressive, a liberal uh, kind of technocratic fetish for paperwork, uh, along with the, the unwillingness to enforce anti-monopoly laws, has produced an, a contemporary American life where all you do is fill out forms and stand in line to buy the same goods that are available everywhere. And it's like, this is what we used to say was wrong with Soviet, you know, with Stalinism, right? This was the, this was the horror of living in Leningrad. You would stand in line all day to fill out forms in triplicate. And then you go to the store where only the, the same things were available as in all the other stores. I mean, have you been down a, you know, a high street or to a mall lately? It, it is, it is that to a T and certainly, like, if you're on welfare of any kind, you know about the bureaucratic nightmare of form filling. But, you know, this is this is also expanded in the era of, like, DocuSign and so on. And Ugh. and um, the Orwellian expansion of fine print uh, through online terms of service. We now are just, just uh, every day we are signing these, these so-called agreements that say, like, by being dumb enough to use the service, you agree that we're allowed to come over to your house and punch your grandmother, wear your underwear, you know, make some long-distance calls and eat all the food in the fridge. And, like, the two buttons are, I agree and abandon hope all you who enter here. Yeah, I, I, I must admit, Graber's, you know, one, one of the things I most loved about Graber and really freed me from a lot of my previous worries was is is his willingness to point out some of the disastrous effects of what I what I would normally call is, is progressivism. Yeah. So that kind of like bureaucratic audit culture, yeah. it wasn't invented by the right wing. It was invented by good government types mm -hmm. in the late 19th and early yep. 20th century. And the, the 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 billionaires don't have to play by those rules. I mean, really, those rules were invented to stop people like Bezos from doing whatever they wanted. Right. And yet now all of us are living under these rules except for Bezos. And that is just a tragedy that, you know, people like John Dewey, who helped create this idea, could, ne could never have foreseen. But when you start talking about – when you start talking about universal basic income uh – -huh. You get these progressives who are like, well, you know, actually, it needs to be means tested. Right. And, you know, let me get out my spreadsheet to see what we can afford to do. And it's like, you're doing the fucking right wing work for yeah. them. Like, yeah. now we're talking about the deserving poor again. How, how did we get back the, here? And we're supposed to be. Yeah. The, yeah. the self-immolating fetish for the for the for means testing of the liberal class is, is wild. I mean, I have to say, like one area where David and I disagreed in a very friendly way was on UBI where, you know, I'm, I'm a modern monetary theory guy. I believe in job guarantees. Uh, um, I also think that we have, um, 
enough labor ahead of us to provide full employment for every human being that does live and will live for the next 300 years because we're going to have to do things like relocate all of our coastal cities 20 kilometers inland and like that's just it's just uh, all the work that we are capable of doing and more is there before us i don't think we live in fully automated luxury gay space communism i think we we are in a world where it's it, it would be desperately premature to abandon productivism like we need to figure out how to do a lot more with a lot less and and one way that you reduce the uh, material and energy bill for uh you know goods and services is by increasing the labor bill so i i i would i would say let's have a let's have a universal job guarantee let's not means test it let's have the the jobs be federally funded locally determined and available to anyone who wants one and if if none of the jobs on offer are jobs that you that you can do there the other job that you can have is training to do any of those jobs and <laughs> and it's democratically accountable local you know that's that's my that's my vision for uh, this future that um, I, I, one of the books that I've got coming out, The Lost Cause, which is about truth and reconciliation with white nationalist militias after a, uh, a Green New Deal transition, really gets into this. And it's it's something that the guys from the Seriously Wrong podcast called Library Socialism. And yeah. I, I, it's a thing that I'm really I'm really down for. Yeah, I like those guys. I like Library Socialism. I would say this is a. This is this might be a topic for an, another day, sure. and maybe we could talk about uh, Legend's the dispossessed yeah. here because that's a that's something that seems and, to be and really why relevant. she was a crazy copyright maximalist who hated my guts. <laughs> like it was a very weird scene, me and Legend, because I love her works and I love her politics, and I think she had a giant blind spot where it came to copyright that actually kind of inspired the last book I wrote. Um, Choke Point Capitalism, which I wrote with my colleague, the Australian law professor, Rebecca Giblin, about how creative labor markets cannot be fixed with copyright. Uh, like if you've got if you've got three giant record labels, it doesn't matter how much copyright you give the artist. The label is just going to acquire it as a condition of reaching the audience. It's like giving bullied, kid ex bullied kids extra lunch money. Right? There's just not like any way that that's going to get the kids fed. You need you need structural engagement. <laughs> And, and that's an area where I think maybe Le Guin's um, anarchism got in the way, where maybe a little more technocratic uh, uh, willingness to entertain like big, ambitious uh, labor market interventions, rather than just like giving a, a, a tradable right to an artist that they could then sell on, would have, uh, would have yielded better distributional outcomes that she would have been more happy with. Yeah, this is a point, uh, Corey, where you and I are in complete agreement like this kind you know what what might seem like some sort of autonomous and anarchistic mode of production like copyright in a world with giant corporations yeah. you can't you can't start there yeah. you can't start with oh give the artists their rights because yeah the, there's, and this is the joke there's a joke whose who's punchline is if you wanted to get there i wouldn't start from here and yeah. <laughs> uh, that's that's how I feel about using copyright to unrig creative labor markets. Okay, I could do this for another hour, but let's talk about David Graeber's sure, Pirate yeah, Enlightenment. A um, very good book. So it, it 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 is a really it is a really good book. It's a really enjoyable book. Um, I'm assuming that the the critique of it, I haven't seen any of the critiques of it yet, but they will start coming out. Is going to be that this is a work of 
you know, romantic fantasy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I was emailing someone about Graber. I mean, this was a while ago. And they were like, yeah, well, I like Graber, except when he lapses into romantic fantasy. I don't know how you feel. It seems to me that this is a work of romantic fantasy. And I am all for that. Mm-hmm. We have been fed one reading of history for i mean this is more or less the argument of the dawn of everything yep. we've been fed one reading of history and the dawn of everything comes out and people are like well actually i don't think this is exactly 100 percent necessarily true it's like well it's a it's it's something new that we can work with and think about and we weren't getting that anywhere else and graber admits in this book you know, was it was it really a, a pirate enlightenment? We don't know. I think right. he says ninety nine percent of the stuff is lost. Right. Well, but it might have been. Yeah. You know, I th- I think that you're right that the critique will be similar to the critique of Dawn of Everything, and I I don't think I think fantasy is the wrong way to talk about it. I think what what Graeber and Wengro did with Dawn, and what he's doing with with uh, pirate enlightenment is they're saying like, look, here are a bunch of facts that we know about what happened. Here are a bunch of um, data points that don't actually turn into facts. They are interpretable in lots of ways. And here are some different ways of joining the dots. Ultimately, they're all non-falsifiable, right? Um, But uh, they are as non-falsifiable as everything else we believe, as the orthodoxy. And so... (laughs) Um, if the orthodoxy uh, holds itself out as a kind of empirical account, you know, I, I when I wrote about, um, oh, it wasn't when I wrote about Wengro and, and Graeber. It was when I wrote about housing. Someone in the comments said, well, yes, but back in the old days, if you didn't, uh, if you didn't um, pull your weight, they kicked you out of the cave. And I was like, <laughs> did you learn this from that documentary, The Flintstones? Like... <laughs> How do, what, you know, like, and I think Graeber's point as an anthropologist is if you go to places where people live like we imagine, you know, with the kind of technology we imagine people had in, in, um, you know, days of the uh, origin of, of man when we were not yet living in this, uh, you know, uh, technologically altered state, that you find people who do have an arrangement where you get kicked out of the cave if you don't pull your weight. We have other ones where we have completely different arrangements that his point is, is not, it must've been this way. His point is it was probably lots of ways. It was probably contingent because it's contingent today. And it would be amazing if the, you know, if, if over the years um, we invented entirely new ways of being selfish or unselfish and, and if rather, you know, rather than the idea that the whole spectrum of proclivities and social arrangements that obtain today in all of our different societies were also present then. So I think that's like what's happening in Dawn. And I think in, in, in Pirate, pirate uh, uh, Enlightenment, what he's saying is like, we have some facts about, about the, and we should introduce the book. So the book is yes. a, 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 an, a, an edited retelling of his doctoral thesis which is ethnographies of people living in Madagascar who are claimed to be and are credibly believed to be the descendants of European pirates who came to Madagascar in some, some you know, uh, liminal state between exile and retirement uh, and set up shop there and intermarried with, with uh, local people 
and created a new culture out of those two cultures. And that this happened at this moment of enormous foment when uh, the age of exploration was underway, people were moving between the continents all the time, and Madagascar became a kind of way station, a crossroads of the world. You had radical Jews, you had merchants, you had privateers, you had armies. And, um, you know, one of the things that uh, history records about this moment is that uh, people who visited the islands met these pirate kings who lived in this kind of uh, amazing, ornate, kind of florid uh, civilization where they had huge courts that were dripping with, with stolen gold and they, they, you know, ruled with an iron fist and did all these amazing things. And, and in fact, these accounts turned into extremely well-received, uh, novels, uh, or not novels, rather nonfiction accounts by, by leading <laughs> English writers. Uh, you know, I think Defoe wrote about Defoe, it, yeah. Stevenson, obviously. Um, and, and it became, part of our cultural vocabulary that this is how pirates lived. This is what piracy was like. And in fact, I was just thinking as I was getting ready for this talk that um, in the copyright wars, there were people who wanted to wear the, the term pirate with, with, uh, with glee and pride and wave the, wave the skull and bones and, you know, it's in the pirate bay and so on. And then there were people who were sort of more serious, you know, kind of Richard Stallman, every time I would use the word piracy, would write to me and say, don't use piracy. Pirates were terrible people. They did rape and murder, <laughs> and they we don't want to be associated with pirates. Uh, and, and this is where that idea of pirates as kind of raping, murdering, uh, whatever, came from. Now, we, we also know that the pirates themselves writing for themselves in a way that had no, uh, that where there would be no reason for them to lie consistently across multiple accounts from people who didn't know each other described a very different life aboard ship if you were a pirate it was one of kind of uh, uh, anarchist anti-authoritarian uh, uh, extremely democratic rule where the the captain was elected by the crew served at the crew's uh, sufferance could be recalled at any moment where treasure was shared equally where decision making was taken uh, through something that looked a lot more like uh, um, an occupy uh, General Assembly <laughs> than like, uh, you know, um, uh, Captain Hook standing on the bridge and saying, you know, keelhaul that lubber. I'll teach you to disagree with me. I will have obedience on my ship. So they were uh, anti-authoritarian anarchist weirdos, right? Who, who, who went around. And w one of the things that, again, these journals record and that the, also the internal documents of the Admiralty recorded is that lots of sailors wanted to be pirates right they were they were press ganged into service they they lived a brutal uh violent life under the rule of their naval officers and when pirates showed up they would sometimes just go like great here we are finally i am rescued from this life as a as a, a seaman on a on a british naval vessel and i can go and like be a pirate and not have this asshole officer making me scrub the deck all the time and I can like go off and like live live a good and happy life so it's not a it's not so so what these what this is kind of setting the scene and what the descendants of these pirates and Malagasy women record and what Graber is is writing or what they what they what they recall what what their oral tradition uh, brings to us is that they were having a laugh. They made it all up. <laughs> Whenever Europeans would show up, 
this matri these matriarchal Malagasy women and their anarchist pirate husbands would like say, hey, let's let's prank these ones too. How about we get like all the treasure and stuff that's on the island? Some of you are gonna pretend to be servants. I'm gonna pretend to be the king. We're gonna you all pretend to be my harem. We're just let's see how like gullible these dumb Englishmen are, right? And and then these dumb Englishmen would duly go back home and record it. Now this is oral tradition. It's not written down. We we have a um, uh, a kind of norm of privileging written work over oral work. Nevertheless, anthropologists of uh, indigenous cultures all over the world, but particularly in the so-called New World in the Americas, know that if you if oral tradition says a thing happened in a place, and then you go and you dig that place up that you find lots of evidence of that thing happening there. That oral tradition, for all that it is, uh, it has some um, unreliability, it also has a flexibility. You know, our written tradition uh, is can um, mislead us because it, it doesn't change. And so if there's a word that's used in writing whose sense changes over the years, which word sense change over the years, <laughs> Uh, then you have this plain, this problem of plain language that doesn't mean what you think it means. I mean, this is the core of all the originalist constitutional debates in the United States. It, uh, it has to do with, uh, you know, whether you think Jesus said uh, the meek shall inherit the earth or the poor shall inherit the earth, both of which are valid translations of, I believe, the Aramaic or maybe it was Hebrew of that, of that book of the Bible. Uh, those mean two completely different things. In fact, arguably opposite things, right? <laughs> Um, and, and so, you know, depending on, on, on how you think those words mean without having had the benefit of the oral tradition in which the person who hands down the story updates the, the verbiage so that the next person who hears it understands its meaning rather than memorizing the words, then, then you can be misled just as well. So here we have this Graeber book that is absolutely swashbuckling. It's a, it's a first rate work of uh, ethnography. He is closely observing the people he lives with. He is observing them uh, not from afar, but among them. He's very much in the, the anthropological tradition of like Clifford Yeerts, which I think uh, people might know as Geertz, but I'm told the Dutch pronunciation is Yeerts, who, who wrote this very famous essay on thick uh, ethnography, where he said, you know, if you observe one person winking at another person, you'll <laughs> never know if they're winking because there's something in their eye or because they're flirting, or because it's aggression, or because they've got a nervous tick. The only way to know is to ask them. You have to actually, it is not enough to observe, you have to participate to make meaning. And and David is, is definitely making meaning among these people who are uh, the descendants of these pirates and these Malagasy women. And um, he is recording what they say and then relating it to the historical facts, the recorded facts, who visited, what they saw, what they wrote, how that impacted the rest of the world. And he comes to this conclusion that, you know, anarchist pirates were doing something a lot like the Enlightenment, not the scientific method part of the Enlightenment, but the, you know, democratic rights uh, part of the Enlightenment. And that, um, you know, the, the Malagasy society they took up with was matriarchal and feminist, that these were compatible philosophies, could be made compatible, and, and that there's nothing in the historic record that makes the oral tradition uh, uh, impossible. And so if we're going to believe anything, why don't we believe that? 
right? Or, or at least entertain that as a co-equal explanation for the one offered by these gullible Englishmen in their pot boilers about pirate kings. So I couldn't, I mean, I agree with all that, but I would still say romantic fantasy is a decent description of that, but I have no negative connotations with romantic fantasies. He's just not making it up. That's why, that's the difference between fantasy and, and um, hypothesis, right? What do you have? What we have is a romantic, unfalsifiable hypothesis, but it's not a fantasy. Like I write fantasy novels sometimes it's, you know, (laughs) I, 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 I wrote a fantasy novel about a guy whose father was a mountain and whose mother was a washing machine, right? I, I made that up, right? There's no, there isn't a mountain in Northern Ontario with a washing machine inside it that uh, are, rom- are romantically attached to each other and have had 10 children, one of whom is like an undead zombie and one is an island and three are nesting matryoshka dolls. And, you know, like that's, that's just not a thing, right? I, that's a fantasy. Um, it, it was made without, it has no points of contact with reality. It doesn't attempt to describe reality uh, or, or uh, hypothesize about how things might really be or might have been. Whereas Graeber, I think, is just trying to say, like, th- it might have been this way. Not like, wouldn't it be cool if it was this way? Although he's definitely saying that too. But like, it might have been this way and wouldn't have that been cool. Yeah, well, maybe we're going to have to agree to disagree about the word okay. fantasy. Um, another, you know, I don't have the quote in front of me, but at some point, maybe in the, I can't remember if it's in the introduction to Wolf Hall or something else I read later, but Hilary Mantel at one point says something along the lines of like, "What what's here is, you know, can, all the facts are here. Nothing here contradicts the facts. Mm. This is how I imagined Cromwell could be. It fits all the facts and sort of like try it out. I don't have the exact quote in front mm. of me, but it's something like that. And that's what I see as the work of, of the good historical novelist. That's what I see as the work of the good science fiction writer, someone like Jack Vance or, or CJ Cherry that like imagine this world that is not ours, but you know, with these certain facts, the way the world is different, it, it's plausible. And that's what I see Graeber as as doing. You can call it a hypothesis if you want, but I would call it an imaginary, but a plausible imaginary. And then yeah, also he's like, wouldn't this be wouldn't this be cool? But it's not. Well, go. I, I see. Go ahead. Okay. I, so I, do, I think plausible uh, is, I think that there's a difference between a plausible explanation and a hypothesis. Uh, the difference being you don't, you don't, the person who says it doesn't think it was true. Right. Uh, or doesn't necessarily think it was true. So if you asked me, how did that strange puddle get into the middle of the floor? I could name 15 things, right? Maybe there was an HVAC leak. Maybe the cat puked. Uh, maybe the kid uh, was carrying water and spilled it. Uh, you know, I, c- I can name a bunch of different reasons why it might be, but I, I, none of them would be grounded in evidence. They'd just be plausible. These are all things that could have happened. I didn't, like, the difference would be is if you said, how did that puddle get in the middle of the living room? And I spent, like, a good day going around asking people, looking at the HVAC system, checking out the cat, smelling the puddle. And at the end of it, I said, I think that there was um, uh, condensation in the HVAC system that came out through that light fixture, made a little puddle here. Uh, but that, uh, and I think that I fixed it by jiggling the HVAC. I, I still like, I haven't proved it, right? Uh, but I, 
I'm telling you what my best guess is, my hypothesis, my non-falsifiable hypothesis. But what I'm not giving you is just a merely plausible explanation. And that's the difference. Graeber went and lived among the people for years. He exhaustively researched the subject. He, he kind of looked around. So it's not like he picked it out of a hat, right? Mm -hmm. He went and found these people who have a tale of how they got to where they are and where their society comes from. He, they described it in detail. He checked out those details to the extent that they were check outable. And he said, if this were the case, this is what I think would have happened. And I think it's true. That is, that is, um, I think that is different from a fantasy and it's different from a plausible explanation. It's a hypothesis. He thinks it's true. I, or thought. It was I agree. True. I, I agree. He, he, I mean, one of the things you teach undergraduates is when you're writing about a work, you use the present tense. Like he thinks it's true, sure. like in the book, whatever. Right, it doesn't, right. it doesn't matter. Um, yeah. I think maybe the key differences between you and I here is that I'm a little more skeptical of his belief that it's true. Ah. <laughs> even though I think that, go ahead. <laughs> no, that's interesting. Sure. Yeah. I I see no reason I see no reason to doubt it. You know, it seems, to, but it, I guess it seems to me more plausible than you know what, whatever word we want to use that's in between plausible and verified. Right. Okay. Yeah. Sure. I mean, I think I one of the things that Graeber wants talking about I this course. Well, I think one of the things that Graeber wants us to understand is that um, the orthodox account of history and of human nature claims to be grounded in fact, but it is mm. grounded in exactly the same kind of speculation and, uh, you know, uh, filling in the gaps, hypothesization, unfalsifiability. It's, it's that this is no, no different from anything else. It's like epistemologically indistinguishable from all the other stories we have no and, you know, that, th i'm going to disagree with you there i think the various orthodox histories rest on much much less okay well maybe evidence. that's right yeah maybe yeah i i mean you know look at look at i i mean i was struck by this in in rise or dawn rather of everything where he you know this this there these different ways of thinking about the indigenous critique that he goes through you know this idea that um indigenous uh kind of um orators of the of the early settlement era uh basically exposed missionaries and uh noblemen and uh everyday random dudes to the, the enlightenment ideals which they then took home to france and made into the enlightenment and you know by his account at the time there was no doubt that this was true there were like <laughs> best-selling 13 volume uh, you know, trans transcripts of conversations between missionaries and indigenous people. Indigenous people traveled back to Europe and like met with people and explained the enlightenment to them and so on. And then there's this period where we just kind of forget about it. And then there's this other period where it's revived. And now it's uh, self-described progressives who say, oh no, this was just, this is just uh, like red face. This is just Europeans not wanting to, um, you know, not wanting to cop to having come up with these ideas themselves because they'd be tortured by some inquisitor 
And so they instead put it in the mouths of these noble savages and us for believing it today. We're just perpetuating that same myth. <laughs> this is just European nonsense and a way of European, a European way of seeing the world. And, and Graeber and, and Wengro take it all the way back and they go, actually, no, like th not only is this what um, indigenous people were doing, it is what indigenous people do. And it matches the oral history and also the archaeological record. I think that's one of the reasons that uh, Wengro and, and Graeber were such a powerhouse pair is because uh, the the parts of the archaeological record that were hard to make sense of could be filled in through anth through anthropology, mm -hmm. and the parts of the anthropological record that were hard to validate could be bolstered through archaeology. Yeah, I've, I I think that's exactly right in terms of the dawn of everything, and I also think I mean again, I I'm struck over and over again by Graeber's reasoning, Graeber and Wingrow in Dawn, and also in this with all of the sort of clever tricks that make sense of the facts we have like one of the one of my favorite ones i don't want to say this either ratsimilaho ratsimilaho the, the 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 supposed pirate king maybe um graber spends a lot of time talking about who could have been his dad and how all the various pirate captains don't quite match up with the evidence he says so now if i'm an orthodox historian i say aha this guy didn't exist but what if I just suggest that uh, his dad wasn't one of the captains, right. which there's no reason to believe that his dad was one of the captains. Right, right. It's just if you could imagine that someone could be born not into nobility and then take power, then the mystery of his parentage sure. disappears. It's the, it's the, uh, who, who shaves the barber, uh, you know? <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's, uh, all you need to do is conceive of a woman barber, and the mystery just just evaporates. Yeah, and that's and that's where he's so good in in this book, and he just makes these moves over and over again. And yeah, if you stack them all up, I don't know if they are all true. No, but they make sense. Sure, they they accord with with the dawn of everything, and they make sense of you know. The Enlightenment for uh, for me in a way that I've been teaching the Enlightenment a long time mm -hmm. and I I I like the I like the narrative a lot better told this way because otherwise I mean one of the things Graeber says in this book is you know the Enlightenment is this collision of all of these different things some ideas from the Islamic world, some ideas from the Far East, some ideas from the the New World. And people knew that at the time. Sure. And they wrote treatises. Oh, look, I'm going to Persia. This is where I got my ideas. And now we're expected to believe that, like, you know, that, that Persia had nothing to do with yeah. the Enlightenment. And that doesn't make, that doesn't make, and that makes much less sense sure. than the other narrative. Sure, sure. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I mean... You know, people are unreliable narrators, and Graeber is an unreliable narrator recording the things that other unreliable narrators <laughs> said. But there's also, you know, like epistemologically, like he is asking us to understand that all of our knowledge maybe isn't equally shaky, but it's all shaky. It's all on the shaky foundation. And um, that, you know, I th and I think the lesson of anthropology, or his anthropology anyway, is that if a societal arrangement has existed or does exist, it could exist somewhere else and we mm -hmm. could build it that like we have freedom. And so I mentioned Ada Palmer before the radical historian. She does this exercise with her undergrads at the university of Chicago. She's um, 
uh, Renaissance historian who studies uh, the Inquisitions in Florence and the, the, its relationship to forbidden knowledge, witchcraft, sodomy, homosexuality, heterodoxy, um, uh, blasphemy, uh, you know, kind of the whole, like, all the good stuff. And um, every year with her undergrads, she uh, stages a four-week LARP in which they reenact the election of the Medici's Pope. And uh, <laughs> she assigns each of her students the, the personage of a real cardinal or great head of a great family. Um, and uh, they all have their kind of character sheets about what their motivations are and so on. And they wheel and deal for a month. And they... they, they <laughs> stab each other in the back they form alliances the alliances fall apart and there's this pseudo-gothic cathedral on campus at, at uc and they all pile in on the final day to invest the pope and she's got a google alert for theater companies selling costumes uh, uh off from their inventory so she dresses them all up like <laughs> like uh you know uh, renaissance florentines and there the, there's the conclave of cardinals the puff of white smoke is released and the Pope is announced. And every year of the final four candidates for the Pope, two are always the same because the great forces of history are bearing down on that moment. And two people are in the favorite race and they're always going to be there. The other two have never been the same, hmm. right? Every time it's different because what we do matters, right? Like there is even in moments that are hugely constrained by the forces of history, there is always room for human agency. And I think that is the anti-authoritarian message. That's the anti-fatalist message. That's the kind of message of, of Graeber-style anthropo historical anthropology that basically says, if it's happened before, we can decide to do it again. Right? Like, not only, like, it, once we know it's possible, we can just do it. It might be hard or whatever, but it's not, it's not impossible because it happened. And so if it happened, it's possible that we can do it again. And so, yeah, he doesn't know for sure that this is how the pirates lived in, in Libertalia, but it's possible because there are other societies that were structured that way, and it doesn't violate any of the things that we know for sure about that time. And then there are a bunch of people who have, you know, this oral tradition that, that validates it. So if even if it turns out he's wrong, he's not wrong because it's impossible. And if it's not impossible, then we can do it, which is, that's for me, the kind of amazing thing here. Yeah, I agree. And, and what's more, the reason why so many of the other uh, hypotheses are fairly easily debunked is because they haven't ever gone and and talked to anyone. In sure. uh, his essay against economics, there's this wonderful moment where people have been debating how banks make money for as long as there have been economics professors. And finally, one of them goes and gets a job at a bank yeah. and, and makes some money and then comes back and is like, I can tell you how banks make money sure, because I did it. And it doesn't seem to have occurred to anyone else to yeah. actually go to Madagascar. There's a, there's a critique of neoclassical economists that goes, if an economist wanted to know about horses, he wouldn't go study horses. He'd ask himself, if I was a horse, what would I do? <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and on the subject of money and back to debt, you know, so debt debt is foundational to modern monetary theory. It, it overlaps anyways with modern monetary theory and, and also work on on Jubilee and its relationship to civilization. And, um, you know, David tells the story of, of conquering armies being provisioned by uh, minting coins paying the army in those coins and then demanding that farmers pay tax in those yeah. coins so the farmers are willing to to sell their their crops for for the money and you know the idea that that 
um, money creation precedes taxation with even an instant's thought becomes obviously true. How can a government tax you for money that they haven't created yet? Right. Oh, they want 17 chickens, obviously. Yeah. That's what governments yeah. need. Sure. But yes, exactly. So, so, but even so, they still have to create the money before they can tax you in the money. Right. And, yeah. um, and again, this is like this thing that is still hugely contentious as we speak that, you know, there, there's this debt ceiling showdown about how much money, whether or not, you know, the U.S. government can pay its debts. I mean, this is just nonsense. The it one thing the U.S. The US, the U.S. government can't run out of is dollars because it just makes those by typing zeros in a spreadsheet. It yeah. can run out of things to buy with dollars, but like the dollars are not a problem. <laughs> And, um, you know, the, this is the, the, you mentioned going and finding out how banks work. Phil Armstrong is an MMT economist, a working class guy from Liverpool, became a, a doctorate, a doctor, a doctor of economics and is a leading thinker in this in the UK, wrote a paper, a really important paper, co-authored, I forget who his other author was, on how um, the, uh, the exchequer, the, the source of money of ster pound sterling, how they make money. Like not like how they earn money, like where money comes from, what the order is of of money spending and creation. And it's just like it's it's unequivocal. <laughs> spending precedes taxation. Like it's it's just true. And you know, they they've gone on he's gone on to do some other work. He did a another paper, I think he co wrote with Mosler on Weimar Germany, which again is one of those stories where they spend too much money and then yeah. prices went up. And it's the other way around. Prices went up because there wasn't enough stuff, right? Because they because of war reparations, so they ran yeah. out of stuff. So what was left, people were bidding up the price of, and then wages were going up because everything became more expensive. They ran out of money. They couldn't print it fast enough. The 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 uh, German central bank deputized employers to create Deutschmarks by stamping blank pieces of paper so that they could make payroll because there literally wasn't enough paper money extant to keep the economy going. So prices went up and then money creation happened, not the other way around. And this is something that we learned from Graeber, we learned from debt, hugely salient to this moment and and very poorly understood, including among, you know, the chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, right? Like this is just, it, it is just wild how badly understood this is and how Graeber was able to make it so clear by telling the story, by bridging the academic and the and the popular there. Yeah, so I wrote, in my dissertation, I wrote on this like economic trilogy by the American author uh, Theodore Dreiser, uh -huh. and there's no dollars in it. No. Everyone, all the bankers are just exchanging IOUs, and I remember not understanding this at all. And like I asked a couple of economists, and they weren't that clear on it, and then I read debt and i was like oh yeah the reason why there's no dollars is because banks make money themselves and so when a banker wants money if he's the head of his own bank he just writes out were, that the money exists well and getting back to ada and her renaissance italy once you understand how double entry bookkeeping works and you understand that you record the liability on one side and then you record the corresponding <laughs> asset on the other side all of this makes sense you know it it, it, it's yeah. um I I am skeptical of the profession of economics, but understanding what economists believe is really important. It's it it has it you have to do it because they're the ones who are making all the rules, and frankly, people trained by them are the ones who are making all the money. Yeah. Um. 
Um, we are we're heading towards the end. I did want to just make the point briefly based on something you had said earlier. I just need to st- I can't stress this enough. I did a whole episode on on pirates before. Okay. The 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 violence of savagery and and pirates is seems to be true. I wouldn't be surprised if they were less violent and savage than the than the British, for example, navy ships. The thing that Graver stresses in this book is what was weird about them was that they were democratic. You'll often hear like, oh, can we like the Vikings? They right. were so violent. And it's like, well, the Vikings were violent and did rape and murder, and so did the Anglo-Saxons and the Gauls and anyone sure. You, sure. you can name. What was weird about the pirates is their anti-authoritarianism, their bloodthirstiness, I mean, shit, was nothing compared to the the Royal Navy. And yeah. it's just so important to stress that. And this is the central question. When you're talking about anarchism, people are like, well, does that mean you're okay with violence? I'm like, well, personally, I, I dislike violence, but there's a lot less violence done by anarchists than by governments. Right. Like, if you hate violence, the people you need to hate is governments, not yeah. pirates. Well, and there's, there's, there's an interesting corollary there to... Um antitrust and the position of libertarians because you know the circles i move in there are a bunch of libertarians and they're not all jerks a lot of them are people who like you will you will if you hang around with libertarians long enough you will meet people who believe that we do not need to be coerced to be nice because they themselves are so unbelievably nice and generous and Mm -hmm. kind and thoughtful um they have blind spots and what have you but still so you know libertarians want a small government i understand why they want a small government uh you can't have lived through the post 9-11 era without being suspicious of of (laughs) of big government and its power or you know the american imperial expansion or or what have you and you know if governments are going to keep firms from cheating then they have to be more powerful than firms and so the largest firm determines the size of the government because the government has to be bigger than that firm or the largest cartel and so if governments aren't there keeping firms from getting too big, then governments have to get bigger. And so if you really want small government, you should also want a lot of really muscular antitrust. And, you know, in a happy coincidence, it's been two days since the DOJ announced that they're going to break up Google. So here we are. Yeah. And look, I mean, it's gov- it's it's not just governments that, like, allow corporations to to get really big by not prosecuting them governments make corporations how do you think corporations get made you fill out paperwork and go to the government yeah there's this i this idea that the two are are separate is 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 sadly mistaken and you're you're absolutely right you can have less of the regulatory coercive kind of government that people don't like the only reason why you need that is because there's other coercive bodies out there and when those get big enough and powerful enough yeah i understand the progressive impulse well let's build an even bigger bully and then i mean you're at unc you understand football metaphors if we gave both teams (laughs) handguns we would have to give the referee a bazooka yeah right yeah so if you don't want the bazooka to have a ref to have a a, or if you don't want the ref to have a bazooka you, you have to keep the the um teams disarmed so yeah, I, I I like this metaphor. Although we prefer basketball here, although of course we do football as well. Um, I, I was only to there read... once for homecoming, which is why it's stuck in my mind. So. <laughs> yeah, well, look, it's it's a very nice, it's a beautiful football stadium, and uh, that's all I'll say about that. There's one quote I wanted to read. I think that can maybe just give people a taste of this, and then we can head towards wrapping up. Um, 
So, yeah, X, X, I, here I am. I would like to emphasize, oh, nope. Well, maybe I'll have to edit this because I can't find my quote. Oh, Looks no. Like I might have yeah, you can add it in later. Ah, here we go. Okay. I found it. I was uh, doing my row maneuvers wrong. I needed XII, and I was at XXII. Oh, dear. So, sorry about that. Right. Too many Xs. Let us tell, then, a story about magic, lies, sea battles, purloined princesses, slave revolts, manhunts, make-believe kingdoms and fraudulent ambassadors, spies, jewel thieves, poisoners, devil worship, and sexual obsession that lies at the origins of modern freedom. I hope the reader has as much fun as I did. That's great. Yeah. Boy, that's a good one. Poor David. Yeah. Right. He was great. Yeah. I mean, this this book, it has all of these things, and it tells a, let's say, a, a brilliant hypothesis about what really happened. And there's so few people that I can imagine writing a story this exciting and fun to read and this resonant and true. Yeah. Yeah. He was a one of a kind. Corey, thank you. Thank you so much. Lovely this was such chat. a pleasure. Mm-hmm.